So, if you have a Bible, grab it. Revelation chapter 10 is where we are going to go. I know that was a mouthful, forgive me. Uh, you know, I have a lot to talk about up here. But, uh, you know, growing up, I know this is probably by, especially based on my stature, uh, this is by no means a surprise to most of you. I played football and baseball growing up. Uh, that's a joke as well. And, uh, you know, basically since I was old enough to hold a baseball or a football, I played the sport, right? Uh, man, my whole life, been around the game. We played the t-ball stuff, the little community league stuff. Uh, I remember my dad tells stories of, like, when I was in, uh, you know, rec league, you know, uh, peewee football and, like, got hit the first time, took my helmet off, said, I'm done. <laughs> you know, walked off the field and they would try it again next year, and I did. And ended up loving the game. I've been around it, you know, uh, at some degree, one way or another, for most of my life. In fact, even up until this recently last football season, I've been able to serve as, like, a character coach for a local high school uh, in uh, Stewart's Creek High School, and basically that means I get free swag and get to get as close to the field as I can legally. Uh, and, uh, you know, I love the game, love being around it, and so I've heard my fair share of, like, the pregame, you know, halftime, the timeout motivational speeches. Right, if you've played sports or anything like that, you've seen them, you know what I'm talking about, you've heard them. Whether There's one that, that just rings in my mind, it just kind of etched in. It's not anything I've heard personally, but something I've seen. And it comes from the movie called Remember the Titans. Has anybody watched Remember the Titans besides me? Okay, praise God. Uh, I was going to say, you know, if you've not, I'm not sure your salvation's secure today. Uh, that's a joke, okay, but not true, not true. Uh, you know, and remember Titans, the true story, believe it or not, about two schools in the 1970s that were integrated, an all-white school, an all-black school, and they're integrating. The story kind of follows this team uh, through this kind of the sociological kind of pressures and stuff that was going on, the tensions of that day, the racial relations that were happening in that day, and how these all-white and all-black school kind of came together to form a new school, T.C. Williams High School, uh, and it was basically followed this team through uh, all that they had to kind of adapt to and work through on their way to a state championship. Now, in the, uh, in the movie, in one of the rounds, they, they end up winning, but in the movie, um, in the Nor Northern Virginia Regional Championship game, they're playing a team that is just beating the pants off of them. I mean, like, they're bigger, faster, stronger. I mean, if you watch the movie, dudes are getting flipped. They're getting just, like, they're wanting to just, they're about to, Wave the white flag. I'm off the field. And uh, I remember the, there's a part where the assistant coach calls a timeout, right? And he brings the team over to him and he says this to him. And I'm going to get you so hyped right now. He says, he says, all right now, I don't want them to gain another yard. Y'all remember this, right? He says, you blitz all night. If they cross the line of scrimmage, I'm going to take every last one of you out. You make sure they remember forever the night they played the Titans. Y'all remember that? Like, if that doesn't make you want to beat some little kid up, take his helmet and hit somebody, I don't know. I don't know what does, right? I mean, that is, I mean, just the most epic part of the movie. And uh, if you don't agree with me, then put on the connect card, I need Jesus, okay? You can get it, turn that in after this. Um, but seriously, here's the point. You know, when you watch that movie, you're stirred up. There's something in your emotions that just kind of gets stirred up. And I think the point of it is motivational speeches serve us in this way that they move us to believe something that we didn't believe before, right? They, they, they move us to stay in the game when we want to bow out to, uh, you know, it drives us at times to do things often that we never thought was even imaginably possible. And that's what I love about Revelation chapter 10. Honestly, in the midst of what has been Difficult sermons to preach, judgment after judgment after judgment, and trying to find, like, okay, God, what are you doing through the Apostle John for the church? And what hope, because I, I do believe this is a hopeful letter, but, like, what are you doing for us that we can leave out of here, not with our heads, you know, beat down, but, like, lifted up to see Jesus? And that's been the thrust each week. But today he kind of, like, calls time out in the middle of all this, brings the church in and gives them this beautiful vision of Jesus, but not just of Jesus, but uh, it gives us a, a reason, a, a uh, you know, a, a picture to, to, to challenges us, to encourage us to stay in the game, right? When it's a really difficult in our world and in our society today, that I mean, we are getting beat down, it seems like, in a lot of places. And some of us maybe feel like you're catching just body shots and haymakers from your culture, society, co-workers. Uh, you know, you look at the news and it's like, man, there is just Bad news after bad news after bad news. Like, how do we stay faithful in the midst of all this? Revelation 10 tells us how. It tells us how we, how we stay in it. 
right? It tells us how we stay faithful, how we remain steadfast in the midst of all this. So I want to read this text. There's 11 verses here together today, and I want to pray after. But if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read this text together? Revelation 10 says this. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and calling out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the, what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the, servant, the seventh angel, sorry, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he had announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Let's pray. Father, God, I ask right now that you would use your word for your people. The promise of scripture is that your word doesn't return void, and so I know that whatever situation is present in the hearts of your people gathered together today, God, your word pierces into those spaces, Lord, and, and, and meets us exactly where you ordain for it to. So, God, I pray that through the teaching of your word, God, that my words would be heard, but your, your word would be the loudest thing. That, Father, Jesus would be the, the thing that is brought into view, into focus today. And before what we see of his holiness, his goodness, and his righteousness, our life would take, uh, would be reordered, would be reoriented, and there would be a work done today. Father, for your work, and for your glory, and for your name, in your name we pray, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So I said a minute ago that these messages and these judgments that we've seen poured out, the seals, the uh, trumpets being blown, the six trumpets so far being blown, there is a lot of judgment. Man, it, it, it's tough, right? But if you remember, John didn't write Revelation to beat us down but to pick our heads up pick our heads up to see Jesus. He says, it's almost like through John, he's saying, it, it may look like you're being defeated. It may look like you're taking an L right now, but God has already won. He's already won the battle. And this is so important for us because I think so often, again, we come to Revelation and what we typically do is we strip the context from the book and we write in our circumstances. Right, we strip what God was actually doing through John for the church, which was supposed to be a very hopeful thing. Remember, they're getting just destroyed, like literally persecuted, murdered. It, it was a difficult, difficult time. Like this is a season of life where a lot of the church fathers were getting killed. It would be the equivalency of this, like you're, you're at church today and your, your phone goes off and there's a video of like John MacArthur being drugged out of his church and shot in the head in, in, in the middle of the streets. Or like some prominent pastor that has a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of appeal and a lot of influence being literally filmed on Instagram, being beaten to death in front of his flock because of him preaching. Like that's the cultural climate that this, this letter is written into and God isn't writing it to add to the, he's not like just squirting lighter fluid on a flame that's already there. What he's doing is he's giving them a vision of Jesus who has already won, who has already conquered the, the day, who's already sealed their victory in Christ to lift their heads up, all right? So don't strip the, the, the book of its context and write in your circumstances because that's not the point, right? The point is hope. And so this is good for us because in the day that we live, listen, we're navigating some rough times, right? Social and, and racial tensions today are hotter than they've been since the 60s and 70s, of which that movie I talked about earlier was kind of depicting, 
right? The, uh, you know, we see this kind of intensification today of drug abuse, and its addictions are skyrocketing. Children born into fatherless homes, it's estimated today, is growing by a million per year. Think about that. That's, that's the kind of climate that we are navigating. In a short time, girls are going to be asked to share bathrooms with boys in school because of gender identity. Teachers are going to have to make a hard stance as to what they're willing to teach because of this pressure to teach in uh, LGBTQ history. Religious liberties in our nation that we've enjoyed for man, decades upon decades, centuries are going to be a thought of the past. Listen, Tiffany and I were, um, last year, we were at the beach. I think it was last year. And uh, I remember walking out to, um, to like, kind of early in the morning, walking out with the chairs because, you know, that's the duty that husbands get, right? The wife gets to sleep in and all that. And we're, like, you know, drudging these things through the, uh, you know, down to the sand and find a spot early. And uh, I remember going, and, and there was, like, some people already out on the beach, and they were all kind of gathered around something, looking, pointing, all that kind of stuff, taking pictures. And I walk over to what it is, and you see these four stakes in the beach. And there's, like, caution tape around them. And I get a little bit closer to see what it was. And, I, I mean, I've, it, I've seen something like this before. This was a little bit more official. There was these papers on the post around the corners of it. And it was this, this federal paper showing that there was, you know, there was this protected area, this sea turtle nest, right, going on. And, uh, and that if you tampered with this nest, it was punishable by law up to a $5,000 uh, fine and potentially five years in jail for a sea turtle egg nest. Now, I was studying this week, and come to find out, the same year, the same year that the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court trial legalized abortion, right, the same year that that happened, sea turtle egg nests were, became protected, 1973. And so I make that statement to say the days in which we live, sea turtles are more valuable than human fetuses, right? This is the culture that we live in, right? And very soon, y'all better be taking up a love offering because I'm going to tell you, my, my words from this pulpit will be considered hate speech if I teach and stand on the word of God as it's presented. So y'all better bail me out, okay? Because <laughs> I'm going to te teach it. I'm not going to steer off of it. And so I could go on and on, but you get the point, right? The days that we live, man, are tough. And if you're like me, I start to wonder, okay, what, how, how am I supposed to raise Lottie to be faithful in the midst of that, in the culture that she's going to step into. She's four now. How, how, do we, how do we raise kids and grandkids to grow up into a post-Christian nation that's hostile to Jesus and his church? How do, we, how do we stand with conviction in a culture that's confused? I think Revelation 10 tells us. So i got three points. My first point is this. Okay, the first point is this. Be confident in a sovereign God. If we're going to stand and be a faithful people, we have to have a confidence in the sovereignty of God, in the sovereignty of God. If you look at verses 1 through 4, again, it says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud and a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. So after the sixth trumpet blows, John sees an angel again coming down from heaven. In the Old Testament, angels of the Lord appeared throughout. Right? If you see this, like the angel of the Lord appears, when it comes to mind is Joshua. Another one was outside the tent of Abraham. You see this angel of the Lord appear. Now there's different ideas about what we're seeing happen in those passages. Some believe it's actually an angel, archangel potentially. Um, some believe it's actually Christ pre-incarnate himself. These are called Christophanies. Anytime where Jesus shows up pre-incarnate in the Old Testament, it's called a Christophany. Regardless what it is, uh, this could very well be Jesus in this text. There's some debate. The, the point is the same. If it's Jesus, great. If it's not, if it's a representative of Jesus, it still represents Jesus. The, the writer's trying to get our face to see Jesus. This mighty angel, it says, is robed in a cloud and has a rainbow over his head. If you know in the Old Testament, the coming of clouds was the vehicle by which God's presence came among his people. I think about 
the tabernacle and, and God's presence in clouds descending on top of Mount Sinai. Right, that's where he, it, and when it would come into the temple and dwell, when it decided to dwell in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, it came on a cloud. The rainbow is likely a reference here to a description found in Ezekiel chapter 1. If you read in Ezekiel chapter 1, let me just kind of reference this real quick for you. It says, um, it says, as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually in the midst of of the fire as it was a gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance, that they, they had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings, their legs were straight, soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze under their wings, on the four sides they had human hands, and the four had their faces uh, and their wings, and thus their wings touched one another, each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion uh, on the right side. The four had a face of an ox on the left side. The four had the face of an eagle. So, such were their faces. If you go on down, it, it goes on to describe. I don't know why I read all of Ezekiel chapter 1. Didn't even get to the point where it see Jesus. It says, and above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. Here we go. In appearance, like sapphires seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a human appearance. And upward from what I had the appearance of his waist, I saw as if it was gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward, what, what, what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as if it was appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around him like the appearance of the, rain, of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. So you see in Ezekiel's vision of the throne room, you see a rainbow over the head of the figure he saw in his thing. So very similar language in Ezekiel chapter 1. His face, it says, was bright like the sun. When Moses, if you remember, came down from Mount Sinai, it says his face was bright because he had been in the presence of the Lord. It says his legs like, were like a pillar of fire. This speaks to the, of this angel, his, his strength and his security, his guidance. If you remember the people of the Old Testament in uh, in the wilderness wanderings, God would lead the people by night in a pillar of fire. So this, this speaks to God's uh, provision and his guidance for his people. It says in the scroll, uh, there's a scroll in the hand of this angel, like the one that Jesus, if you remember, took in Revelation 5 from the hand of God. His right foot is on the sea. His left foot is on the land. And in the Bible, if your feet were, were on something, it meant you, it was yours, right? You had dominion over it. It was, you had sovereignty over it. You, uh, you had authority over it. So this mighty angel is showing complete control and authority over all creation. So even if there is debate about what we see here, it definitely draws our attention towards the face of Christ, right? Towards the Lord. You see, and if Revelation does anything for us today, what it ought to do for us today is increase our view of Jesus. It should, it should increase our view of God and, and remind us, especially here in Revelation 10, we see this massive deity, right? This massive angel coming down, you know, feet on the sea and land, all of this pillar of fire for legs, face like, I mean, just radiating with the sun. You have like this, this amazingly intensifying picture of whether it be an angel or it be Christ himself. You have this big picture of God. And I think what Revelation should do for us is, is remind us that we don't serve a small God. Right? Like maybe that's the problem with most of us today. You see, I, I think that one of the biggest problems for Christians today is not that our problems are too big. Right, or that our trials are too many. I think one of the biggest problems for us is that our God is too small. Right? That we 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 put God in a box, and what Revelation reminds us of is He's in control, right? He is God and you are not. You see, He is not a local deity, fashioned with hands, weak and limited. He's not one of many options to consider. This text this morning reminds us to drive our faces, see Jesus as the Bible describes him. 
to see the one who has conquered, to, to remember the one who is in control in the middle of your mess, to lift your eyes off of your problems and onto that person, to stop wringing your hands over all the political indifference in our world today and the pandemics that are going on, but to see Jesus who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I love Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. You write that down. This gives us a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. It says this. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he, look here, upholds the universe by a word of his power. He uphold, Think about that. He upholds the universe. Maybe that is what we need to be reminded of today. That there is not one thing that you walk through that he's not capable enough to hold, right? Do you think he, he's big enough for your worries this morning? Do you think that he can't handle your marriage stress this morning? Do you think there's a report that you can get, a loss that you can walk through, a rebellious kid or financial storm that he didn't see coming? That he won't see you through? Listen to me, I love what Spurgeon uh, Charles Spurgeon, pretty much any good quote in Christianity, he, he's attributed to it, whether he said it or not. It's okay. He said this about the sovereignty of God. Beautiful, beautiful quote. He says that the sovereignty of God is the pillow where we can lay our head. It's, it's the pillow. Here, here's what the point is. When you understand that there is a God who's in control, it begins to reorient the way you look at the things that you walk through in your life. When you understand that God is in control of all things, and that with the word of his power, he upholds the universe, then when you walk through a medical situation, it doesn't mean that there's not real and present fear and, and maybe like trial and stress that comes naturally because of who we are and we're gravitated to, to, to worry and prone to wander and things like that. But when you understand that God is in control and not a single atom is spinning outside of his sovereign control today, man, it should bring for us rest. An abiding rest, right? That we can bring our cares to him and trust him with the outcome. We can trust him. See, the aim of God through John for the church is that we would be a people who lay our head on the sovereignty of God this morning. If we're going to be a people, listen to me, if we're going to be a people who stay faithful, who are faithful people, who are confident people, who are people who, are, uh, who don't bow to the world, but we stand in, in the midst of where we're going. We have got to be a people who are dogmatically grasping the sovereignty of God. We have got to be a people who say, it doesn't matter what comes, it doesn't matter what trials I have to walk through because of my faith. If God is in control, if he is as big as Revelation says he is, I'll be all right. Because in the end, we win. In the end, we win. You know, this, this text uh, finds its roots in Daniel 12. In Daniel 12, if you remember, Daniel receives a... It, listen, there's nothing said in, the old, in Revelation that's not said in the Old Testament. In Daniel 12, Daniel receives a vision about the end times. And in this vision, he, uh, th there's an angel that gives him as a messenger of, like, what's going to come. And he, they, uh, Daniel asks, like, when is this going to go down? Like, when is all this going to happen? And the angel says, uh, it'll be, I think he says like time, half a time, and time and a half or something like that. It's something crazy. Anyway, so you can read it in Daniel 12. And, uh, and basically he says, when's it going to happen? And it says the angel lifted his hands to the heavens and swears by the, the Lord who lives forever and ever. What he's doing, and he does it here in Revelation 12, we see this angel with his hands Lifted, this mighty angel, hands lifted to heaven, and he declares that these things will happen. When in the angel in Daniel 12 made this promise, he swore by him who lives forever. There was not a higher authority, there was no greater name by which he could swear, by in which he could promise, by which he could appeal, right? There's no greater name. Most scholars believe that Daniel gave this prophecy, listen, 700 years before John saw it come to fruition. Right, but now what seemed far off for Daniel was as sure as tomorrow for John. Here's the point. His word is certain. What God says is certain because he's sovereign. When you lose the sovereignty of God, you lose the certainty of God. Right? But we've got to be a people who understand, man, that there is one that we serve who is not just in control, but he is sovereignly in control. He's in control of your, of your marriage. He's in control of your kids. 
Listen, I think it's so easy for us at times to believe that we're in control. And that changes the way that we parent our kids, right? Like, if, if I'm in control, then I'm going to make sure before Lottie goes to sleep tonight that she accepts Jesus Christ, right? I'm going to make sure that she prays the prayer after me. I'm going to make sure that I have pictures of her baptism, right? And I'm going to make sure that it happens on my watch. You track it, right? But what the Bible says is that God is sovereignly in control. And so what changes when we understand that God is in control, we talk a whole lot more to God about Lottie. Right? I talk a whole lot about, more about the Lord begging him by his mercy, by his grace, that he would save my, my daughter. Right? I, I beg God to give me strength to be the husband I need to be. I beg God to give me the, the, the strength and the confidence and the, uh, the faithfulness to pastor this church the way I ought to. Right? I, don't, I don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about what everybody around me, whatever self-help book kind of informs my life. I trust the Lord and his sovereignty. Right? We've got to be a people who trust the sovereignty of God. Okay? If you've been following basketball season right now, everybody's been glued to the screens. It's March Madness, right? Well, uh, on Friday, a number two seeded Ohio State. We've got, I'm sure there's got to be some Buckeye fans in here. They're in every tribe, right? Uh, the Ohio State Buckeyes played number 15 seed Oral Roberts. Now, this was fascinating. I read this the other day. Oral Roberts upset the Buckeyes. Newsflash, okay, so a two seed was beat by a 15 seed and in the process busted 14 million brackets. 14 million brackets. Listen to this. That was 95% of all brackets turned in. If that tells us anything, if March Madness tells us anything year after year after year is that we're not sovereign, right? In our best study, in our best research, we are not in control. When God comes to the church to give this encouragement in the midst of the hard time, in the midst of the, of the difficulty they were walking in, and challenges them to stay in the game, he doesn't come in the locker room and say, hey guys, come here, look inside. He doesn't, he doesn't come in and says, just hone your skills. You got to just, just press in a little harder. That's not the, that's not the point. What's the, what's, what does God do through John in Revelation 10? He says, get your eyes off of you. Stop looking at you. Spend a whole lot more time looking at Jesus. Jesus is the one in control. Stop looking in, start looking up. John says, if you want to stand, you got to take your eyes off you and look at God. And I fully believe that. I fully believe that if we're going to be a people who stand in the days that we're about to step into, that we're progressively stepping into, right, we've got to be a people who love to stare at Jesus, who love to stare at him, which brings me perfectly into the next point. Second point is this, if we want to be people who are faithful, we have to be nourished by, listen to me, eating God's word. Eating God's word. Before you start chewing on your KJV, let me just tell you what I'm talking about. Verse 8 says, then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go and take the scroll that is open. Look at that. He says, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I, when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. So in this text, John is told to go and take the scroll from the angel. This word scroll is the same word in Greek from which we derive the word Bible. It means book, right? He says, go take the little book out of the angel's hand. If you remember in Revelation 5, uh, God the Father had the scroll, right? Jesus snatches the scroll out of the right hand of the Father, showing that he has authority to do so. Had seven seals on it. As each seal broke, so came the judgments of God. After the seventh seal broke in Revelation chapter 8, the scroll was now open, containing... The full redemptive plan of God, both to redeem the saints and judge sin. Okay? So that scroll now is wide open. And so when this angel shows up in this, this massive, mighty angel, right, drawing our attention to see Jesus, he's holding the scroll open in his hand. Now some debate, is that the same scroll? I believe it is. I believe it is because the scroll is open, and I believe that uh, based on the... Uh, the way that this text draws us to, uh, to, to see Jesus in all the descriptions, I believe the point is that he wants us to see that this angel is Christ who is holding the scroll that's now open, right? And so John is told to go and take it, take the scroll and eat it. What a word 
Listen to me. What a word for the church today. Right, man, if we're going to be a people who are faithful, we've got to stop sitting and scrolling. Right? We've got to go and take the, the word. We've got to be a people who go and take the word. If we're going to stand in the world and not bow to it, we have to be a people of the book. And just like John, we have to eat it. Listen to me. Devour it. Steep in it. Which means you have to spend time in it. You know that the, um, there's a, a publication that's issued every year called the State of the Bible. It's issued by Barna Group, uh, research group. And for 2020, there was a, st- a statistic I read that said one out of every nine confessing believers say that they read their Bible. Not once a week, but they do it. One out of every nine. And I'm a great mathematician, but that's less than 10%. So they engage their Bible. So so probably one of the greatest threats against the church today is Bible literacy. And so listen to me. If we're going to be able to be a people who stand in a culture which we're moving into, whether we want to or not. And I don't believe, listen, I don't believe the church was just supposed to live on life support. I don't believe God's church is just supposed to survive. Right? God's church has always thrived in hard times. But you know what was maybe different about the first century church from where we are today in in kind of the state of of the church, the big C church, is that I believed that they loved God's word. They would die for it. And, And so access is not the problem anymore. Access was a problem then. Access is not the problem now. Virtually every American has access to God's word. In multiple copies right now. The problem is we don't spend time in it. We don't steep in it. We don't protect that time. We don't, because ultimately, I think it really boils down. I don't think that we love deeply the God the Bible points us to. Because here's what I know. Listen, I love my wife. I would not be able to stand here and tell you I love my wife if I never talked to her. Right? I could tell you that. She'd get up and say, no, he don't. (laughs) He don't answer my calls. He don't text me. He never comes home. That would be a problem. You can't build relationship in silence. But yet we practice our faith assuming that that's possible. That we can come and we can lift our hands. We can hear something. We can be entertained. And then we can leave here and expect to grow in my relationship with the Lord. Expect to remain faithful in hard times. And we wonder why our, like... We wonder why I feel apathetic in my faith, and it's because, listen to me, we do a great job talking to God, saying, Cosmic Genie, give me this. Cosmic Genie, give me blessing. Would you do this for me? Would you give me this job? Would you, when I get in hard-pressed times? But when it comes to the steady drip of communication with God, not just talking to him but hearing from him, man, we, we fall massively short. So we've got to be a people who soak in it, who spend time in it, who meditate on it. And some of the objections you hear is like, I can't understand it. Well, get you a Bible you can understand. Right? Well, I don't like to read. Yes, you do. Stop lying. Yes, you absolutely love to read. You sit and read 63,000 hours of Instagram a day. You love to read. I can pull you up and you can tell me everything, every stat available about your favorite team. Don't You love to read. The problem is, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Because, listen, if you don't love Jesus, you don't, you don't want to read about it. You don't, want to, you don't care what he says to you. You care much more about whatever your, your team is, right? So, so I don't like to read. I can't understand it. It's hard. You will not grow in your faith apart from Bible reading. It's, it's that simple. You cannot, you will not grow in your faith, I don't care what great devotional with a little snippet of scripture at the top. I don't care what motivational speaker, Joel Olstein on your TV, whatever. You will not grow in your faith apart from time spent in God's word. It has to be a part of your life. It has to be. And listen, the reason I'm passionate about this is because you just see where we're going. You see the way cultures, and if we're going to speak into it, not just live and exist, but influence. We've got to know what God's word says so that we are not just so easily swayed by every wind of doctrine, so easily swayed by every new ideology, so easily swayed by every sociological like, shift of tide 
We've got to say, no, God's word says this. So I've got to be able to protect my daughter. I've got to be able to protect my family. I've got to be able to lead them to know what God's word says and to cherish him. And, to, and, and point their hearts to see him and to see the errors in society. Not so that I can get comfortable with it, but I can speak into it. So are you eating God's word? Are you devouring it? Psalm 119, 18, that would be a prayer for all of us. He's, the psalmist says this, he says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your word. I want you to pray that when you spend time the next time you think it's hard. Would you ask God to open your eyes to see Jesus in it, to see wonderful things in it, things that may convict, things that shape, things that, that you didn't see there before. That's what I love about Scripture. It's, it seems like you can visit the same text over and over and over, you know, and it seems like, man, God shoots something new out at you. He, he, he points something else out in your life. He puts his hand on a different place that he's not yet touched. And so, man, let's go to God's words. Be a people who open our eyes that we might see wonderful things out of his word. But I want you to notice what he said when he said to eat it. Excuse me. He said, he said when you eat it, it's going to be bittersweet. Right? Look at what he said in verse 9. It says, it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it's going to be sweet. Why do you say that? Well, I think it's just the nature of the word. Right? Psalm 19.10 said, more to be desired are they than gold. Talking about God's word. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. This is what we talk about God's, God's word. It's supposed to be sweet to God's people. It's sweet, why? Because it contains the promises of God. Right? It contains the promises of God. It draws our heart to see Jesus. It may, we see that there is, a, there is a great salvation coming for the saints who remain faithful. There is, man, there is assurance of our salvation through Christ Jesus. There is, there is forgiveness of sins through confession and repentance. Man, there are so many great promises. There is grace. There is so much that is sweet when we take and eat, right? But it's also bitter because, listen, it's a sharper than a two-edged sword, right? It cuts. It points stuff out in our lives. that It's difficult. It, it's bitter because to live it out is difficult, right? We read Christ's teachings about coming to him costing us something. And when you truly want to be a people who are going to be faithful in the end, right, we've got to be a people who take and eat God's word, and it is bitter and it is sweet, right? It is sweet, again, because it contains great promises, but it is bitter because in order to be that people, it's going to cost you, church. It's going to cost your time. I want you to hear me say that. I, I love you. It's going to cost your time, but it's worth it, Amen. Right? It's going to cost your, it's going to cost the, the, the trajectory and the, maybe the, how do I say this? It's going to cost some thought as to what your family is willing to go and to be a part of. It's going to change the way that you calendar. It's going to change the way that you budget. It's going to change because, listen, that's the bitter side of things, but the sweet is, is so closely related. I mean, it's sweet because it makes the heart of God happy, right? It's sweet because it promises great blessing for those who are obedient. So it ain't like we're just, man, dragging our chains through life. There is great joy for the believer, right? Jesus said, I've come to you, might have life and have it abundantly. I want that, Right? I want not the knockoff, not the, not the, uh, you know, the counterfeit. I want abundant life. That's what I want. Right? And, and Jesus says that that's the way. Right? The way is the way that's going to be hard, the way that's going to cost, the way that's going to hurt at times. But that's, that is the way to blessing through the difficult road. So it is a bitter road, and it's also bitter, listen to me, because to speak God's word to a culture of confusion, it hurts. Right? Who, I mean, who wants to be told? That there is exclusivity to following Jesus. There is one way to heaven, and it's through the person of Christ. Right? That the way that you to go to someone that you love in your workplace and to say that the way that you are living your life apart from Jesus Christ will end badly for you. Right? That the way that you are thinking erroneously about sex and sexuality and marriage, that you're in sin, that you need to repent, then that is difficult. That is a difficult business. So if we're going to be a people who refuse to bow to the world, we have to be a people who are willing to stand on God's word. And listen to me, if, if you don't stand on his word, you will bow to the world. You will. 
You will. And what's so sad is you see so many Christians today that are so confused. So many people in church so confused. So confused about our world. Man, what do we really believe about this? Then you start hearing that the narrative is like, oh, man, I think maybe God, maybe God really does, you know, maybe he is a little bit more inclusive than Scripture says. Maybe, 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 you know, maybe what that, maybe that's an old doctrine that needs to be revisited, needs to be revised. You know what the problem is? It, the, the problem isn't the word. The problem isn't God. The problem isn't that God was outdated or God needs to be updated. That's not the point. The problem is that they never knew God's word. They never knew God's heart. They never knew God's character of immutability, that he never changes, that he is who he says he is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That, that's who our God is that we serve. They never held on confidently to his sovereignty, speaking into every hard place that they move and in, in, in that they step into, whether it be their workplace or whether it be the hallways, that we try to equip our students to step into, to know God's word, to invade those spaces. Listen to me. The problem is that we don't know the word. If we're going to be a faithful people, we've got, we've got to eat the word. We've got to devour God's word. And then finally this, we've got to share God's hard words to a hard world. We've got to share God's hard words, words to a hard world. And then finally in verse 11, he wraps this up when he says, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations, languages, and kings. You've got to prophesy again. Prophesy means to, to speak to speak again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This text, you know, really mirrors uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Uh, the angel told John to prophesy about many nations, languages, and kings. And then Revelation, if you remember nations and kings, we've talked about this throughout, it, it, it alludes to those who, are, who dwell in the earth, those who are enemies of God. So the aim of this text is to speak. He says, John, devour the word so you can preach the word to those who need it. Devour the word so you can preach the word to those who are enemies of God, those who are unbelieving, those who have uh, bent their hearts away from God's heart. So John is told to eat the word so he can share the word. Again, this uh, in Ezekiel 2 and 3, Ezekiel is told to eat the scroll so that he can proclaim it to Israel. John here is told to eat God's sweet word so he can share it to a hard world, right? The sweet, dripping, honeycomb, tasting word in your mouth, you need to eat it so you can preach it to a hard world. To a hard world, sorry. And I, this, is so, this is so crucial because so many today, I think, believe that, it, or if they don't believe it, maybe they practice this. If they come, they devour, and then they sour. What I mean by that is that they just come eat, they come eat, they come eat, they go to Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, life group, life group, life group, and they eat, and they eat, and they eat, and they never they're never wrung out. They're never, they're never teaching. They're never preaching the gospel to anyone in their lives. We're not speaking the name of Jesus to anybody in our workplace. We're not doing any family discipleship. We're not telling those things to our kids like Deuteronomy 6.4 tells us. We're not, we're not doing what we're, we're not taking the word and then preaching the word. We're just eating it. We're just consuming. Just consuming. That is not the church that God had in mind. See, the reason the first century church expanded and grew so rapidly, listen, was not because a couple hired help were out, like, with a megaphone. Now, you say, well, what about, you know, Acts 2? Beyond Acts 2, the gospel gets here not because of the pastor. The gospel got here because people in the church loved and knew God's word so much that the news was too good to keep to themselves. And they understood that the, the, the Great Commission, which is for every Christian, not just pastors and seminary, right, is to go and make disciples. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. Listen to me. You will not make a disciple apart from preaching the gospel. And so if we want to be obedient people to the Great Commission in our lives, we've got to be a people who preach the gospel. Guess what? It goes backwards. You won't be able to preach the gospel if you don't know the gospel. And listen, you can't preach a gospel that doesn't include a sovereign Christ. So, if we're going to be faithful people, we've got to hang on to the sovereignty of God. We've got to be a people who eat and know the word of God. And we've got to be a people who share it. We've got to be a people who share the word. I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you, anybody Bonhoeffer fans in here. He's an anti-Nazi theologian, pastor, ninja. Okay? He was amazing. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer... Um, 
once said this. He said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Listen to me. Engaging your faith as a believer, actually participating in the evangelization of your workplace, of your neighborhood, of your coworkers. Listen, I, I can't, I would be willing to say that most of us have unbelieving neighbors either right across the street or on both sides of us. And I would also be willing to say that most of us have never told them about Jesus. Engaging your faith, listen to me, engaging your faith will cost you a lot more than being entertained. It will cost you. It will be awkward. It will be hard. It's not easy. Rejection's probably going to follow. But listen to me, it's obedience. Obedience isn't in the results. It's in sharing. It's in preaching the gospel. It's, been, it's in telling people that Jesus Christ is the only way that, by which they will see the Father. It's by telling them that apart from confession of sins and repentance, right, apart from confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God had raised his son from the dead, that he lived a life that they could never live, went and died a death they deserved to die, and that by faith in the risen Christ who, got, who was laid in the tomb and three days later was resurrected, by, by faith alone, right, Apart from that faith, they will never see the face of God apart from judgment. We've got to be a people who, man, we, we, we engage our faith. I don't just want to plant a church, guys, that, listen, we come and we get crowds and we just entertain. That's sweet for a season. But listen to me. What if we were a people? Just, I want to just imagine this with me. What if we were a people who loved Jesus so much that we were just deadly serious about the Bible. Like, like we, were, we knew God's word so well that it would not matter what came, what wind of doctrine, what new ideology, what new you know, bent of culture, new pressures on the church. We wouldn't budge from it because we knew that that's where life was found. What, what if we were a people who believed Jesus Christ was sovereign, that it wouldn't matter what the world threw at us, what pressures came at these doors or the next doors, right? That when we stood on God's word, we would not bow to the world because we believe Jesus Christ was so good, he was so faithful, he was so beautiful that he was worth dying for, if that's what it meant. But what if we were a people, man, who, who listen, we leave here and... We go out into neighborhoods, into workplaces, into business places, into meetings. That, and people knew. They knew that we love Jesus because we would not stop talking about it. You didn't have to put it on your bio. They, it was on your lips. And what if we were that kind of people? Listen to me. That's where impact will be found. That's how we remain faithful. So what John is doing right here in Revelation 10 is he calls time out. He gets the team together and he says, listen, if you want to be a people who are faithful in the end, you want to be a people who stay in the game and don't bow out because things get hard, you got to get your eyes off yourself. you got to get your eyes on Jesus. you got to spend time knowing the word, eating the word, devouring the word because that is where life is found. And then you're going to go and tell people about it. That's how you're going to stand in those days. So listen, are you engaging the word in that way. Really easy application point today. You will not stand on that which you don't know. Okay? You will not be able to stand in that which you do not know. You cannot go somewhere where you've never been yourself. Right? You can't take someone anywhere that you've not visited yourself. And so if we want to be a people who stand on God's word, we've got to be a people who love it. Right? We know it. We know who it's about. We know what it points to. We know the, the, the heart of God on, on sexuality. We know the heart of God on marriage. We know the heart of God on financial ethic. We know the heart of God as it pertains to life and, and purpose. We know the heart of God. Do you know his heart? Do you know his heart? So here's the application today. Listen, as we in the band, I think you guys are going to come and close us out. A really easy application today, out on the table, underneath the tent. If you're not reading your Bible, let's make it really easy for you. We have something right here. We've printed up. It's perforated in a couple spots across here. You can fold this up, put it in your Bible, and just, listen, you ain't got to worry about, Bible reading plans can be defeating sometimes. You look at all these checks and say, I'm not ready, I'm done. All right, don't do that. Just jump in on the next day. 
the point isn't that you complete it. The point is that you're reading God's word, that you're engaging his word. So grab one of these, put these in your Bible, find a time and start spending it there, right? Protect it. Engage God in his word. Because here's what's so important about how we, how we apply this message, how we remain faithful in the end is that, man, we not only spend time in his word, but then we've got to start telling people about it, beginning with your home. Beginning with your home. If we're going to raise our families to know God's word, we're going to start spending some time in it personally. You're going to start spending some time with your family around it. Right? And you don't have to be a theologian. So many, so many people are like, man, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I would say if I get my family together. Uh, you don't have to prepare a sermon. Sit down and read a Bible together, a, a passage, one passage. If you're like me, I've got a four-year-old. She's ripping my ears off when I'm trying to read something, and she's crawling all over me. I'm not getting much out, okay? We're going to read like two verses, amen, okay? But then pray together, and, and just let that be a rhythm in your home. Right? Let that be a rhythm that you begin today. Do you know God's word? Engage his word, okay? Engage his word. If we're going to be faithful, we've got to be a people to do that, all right? I love you guys. Let me pray. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for today, God. I ask that you would be honored today by your word. God, I pray that, uh, Lord, if there are people here who do not know you, Father, I pray that they would today. Lord, there would be something stirred up in them to step into a relationship with you. God, maybe there are many people here today that have been walking with you. But, God, I pray that... Uh, Father, they would do so in greater faithfulness. God, I pray that they would have a greater commitment to your word, a greater commitment to your church, a greater commitment to the belonging, God. God, I pray that they would be a people who carve out space where they can meet with the creator of the universe, the big God we see here in Revelation 10, the one who is sovereign, who is holding everything by a word of power. God, I pray that as we leave here today, God, we would be so energized to go and to meet with you tonight, tomorrow, in our, in our Bibles, God, that we would be a people who dive into it like we never have before. God, that our, our kids would know it, our families would know it. God, that we would spend time in community around it. Lord, would you help us? God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, guys, this, as we close out and worship here, if you are new with us again man i'd love to meet you out on the, the patio if you're here and you've uh you, you've been coming for some time and you have something you want to talk about come meet me out there also if you've already given we're going to move into a time of worship through giving as well uh, if you've already given thank you so much if you've not yet done that you can do that online a couple different ways you can do that lifept.org forward slash give you can also text to give i think it's 933-5600 something like that um, and uh, man we will uh, we'll see you guys next week all right Let's go.